Several years ago, my wife and I were viewing an art gallery, and I came across these series of portraits that grabbed my attention, so much so that I tried to take a picture of them, it just didn't work out for me, and just kind of log it down to remember this, these series of, of uh, pictures and scenes that were in this, uh, these pictures and portraits. And the first series is, uh, three, is picture, three pictures, and the first one was a scene of God making the earth and giving it to man. The next portrait is kind of what man has done with this world. And it was filled, it was essentially a picture of a battle scene, the annihilation, bombing, violence, propaganda. You see the mushroom crowd uh, in the back. But in the midst of all that, in the background of the scene, was Jesus on a cross. And then the third picture was one of one man, repentant, standing in the midst of graves in isolation. God's outstretched arms toward this man. I thought, what a beautiful picture of God's grace. Though man has been entrusted with a gift, they have destroyed it and abused it for their own selfish endeavors, and yet still, you have the conclusion of God's receiving the grace. I think that in life, there is also a gallery where God has revealed His grace. Not necessarily just in the portraits that you may hang on the wall, but living, breathing portraits of God's grace. Friendship can be a portrait of God's grace. I'd like to direct you this morning to one such scene, a friendship between David and Jonathan, and how we can see in this relationship God's grace. <coughs> we find this passage this story, this portrait, if you will, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We see a beautiful picture of the grace of God as given to us. So, what is grace? You can define it as that which is given to us of which we do not deserve. Or an undeserved blessing freely bestowed on man by God. Or God's unmerited favor. John Edwards, a... Uh, Colonial period theologian, preacher, defined it and described it this way as grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. In other words, in that beautiful, unique characteristic of God and the splendor of it that we call glory, and the basis of that is the characteristic of grace. That Ephesians 2 8 9 says that we're saved by grace. In other words, we escape eternal Damnation, or the wrath of God, for our sins, because of grace. What on earth is it? Well, let's look and see. As we look at this chapter, let me give you a little background uh, to the life of David. Saul, King Saul, was the very first king of Israel, anointed by God with the prophet Samuel. And he was a good king until he started disobeying God. Because of his lack of faith and pragmatism and patience and, and the continued disobedience of God, gave the verdict. Saul, you will no longer be king. There will be one raising up who will be king after you. You will lose it. Saul did not like this news. And meanwhile, uh, a little shepherd boy was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king. A little boy named David. 
We see him grow up, and as he grows up, he faces the giants, the Goliath, the, the precious, beautiful story of David and the Goliath. And at that moment, the battle of David and Goliath, a kinship is born between Saul's son, Jonathan, and David. When they see each other, they see a like spirit in one another. Both of them had the tendencies to, uh, to go in risky situations and battle for the glory of God. And they saw that about one another, a fearlessness that each other had. And they loved each other from that point on and had become lifelong friends even at that moment after the battle of David and Goliath. That relationship continues on. Saul allows David to be in his court and nurturing and working in the court case until Saul becomes jealous of David and tries to kill him multiple times. Uh, David just barely escapes with his life and lets Jonathan know. Jonathan is surprised about the news and, and he uh, tells David that he will confirm this with him. And so he goes and, and finds out what Saul's true intents are and warns David. So David need to go away. But at that moment in time, they make a vow, a commitment to one another. And in that commitment, they say simply this. He says, look, David, I know you'll be king. You're going to be king after me. And when you have rest from all your enemies, when you do this one thing, always protect my family. Don't let my family be slaughtered. Kill, do not kill us. Later on, uh, David goes on and, and spares and forgives King Saul after King Saul tries to kill him. And we see, again, a commitment is made from King Saul, uh, uh, from David for King Saul, regarding the same, that he is to always remember the line of David. In fact, let me read to you 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 15. In this passage, Jonathan and David are interacting, and they say, Jonathan says this, Thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David. Everyone from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even acquire the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan calls David to swear again, because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. That is a beautiful friendship between Jonathan and David. In fact, after Jonathan is killed in battle, the battle of Geboa, David reflects upon Jonathan. He says that the love that we had was greater between a love and a man and a woman. That there was just a friendship that was unique in all the world between these two. And so we're going to see how that friendship carries on even after one person is killed and died. And how they extend grace to this family. And so that's where we find ourselves. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is indeed king. Enemies have been vanquished. There is a period of rest in David's reign, and he remembers a covenant he made with Saul and with his son, Jonathan. He remembers his dear friend. And so, we'll read this together. If you'll read it silently as I read it aloud to you, and in honor of this passage, let's stand as we read together 2 Samuel chapter 9. Then David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still yet a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. 
So the king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and, on his face, and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the, sign, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and, all, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You... Your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants, and Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands to your servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba, servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Mephibosheth before. Uh, it's a good name. You are trying to say it. It's kind of fun to say. Uh, you say it three times fast, you may need to go to the doctor, but... Uh, it's a, it's a good name, and I hope by the end of this it'll be such a name that you wouldn't even mind naming your, your dog after, even if you could say it. Uh, it's, it's a good name. Well, here is a most beautiful story. We're going to see God's grace here, but we're also going to learn some important lessons about the grace of God in this beautiful story. What does God's grace look like? What is it, by the way? And so when we ask that question... I present to you this story. You want to know what God's grace is? Look at this story. First of all, as we read verse 1, we get the idea that David had on his mind his agenda, grace. You notice the question that's repeated two times, verse 1 and verse 3. He says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that it may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In other words, I don't care who they are. I don't care what they look like. I don't care if they're ugly. I don't care if they're stupid. I don't care if they're poor. I don't care if they're rich. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with what I want to do. Here's an important lesson. Grace reflects the nature of the giver, not the recipient. It reflects the nature of the giver and not the recipient. It has nothing to do with the recipient. Notice in verse 3. When uh, the servant, Ziba, is in front of him, he repeats the same question. Why did the writer of 2 Samuel say this twice? He wanted you to get the idea of what this story was about. But notice the differences. Verse 1, he says that he's doing this for the kindness for Jonathan's sake. Verse 3, he says, Is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? The kindness of God. The word kindness here is a very precious word. You see it throughout the Old Testament as a Hebrew word referring to the loving kindness, the steadfast faithfulness 
of God. In other words, the loving faithfulness, the kesed. In the New Testament, when they come to this word, they change the word around to the word charis, which is where we get the word grace. So, in English, as we look at this word, we could do to say this without much damage to the text to say, David is looking to show the grace of God to someone of Saul's family. And so that's the point. He says, I want to teach you about God. He's wanting to teach us about God. <clears throat> and so that's the idea. It doesn't matter who they are. And so Ziba comes forth and says, yeah, they're still son of Jonathan. Ziba evidently is the steward of Jonathan, of uh, Saul's resources, his property. He was the manager. And so he was the one who knew. He says, there is one. But notice what he says in verse 3. Who is crippled and both feet. Why does Ziba mention that? See, he thought maybe it'd make a difference. Well, you know, he's crippled in both feet. What if I said to you, you know, you can adopt a child, but this child is crippled in both feet. What does that mean? Register it in your head. Okay. It means more work. It means more time. It means more money. It means more of everything. Doesn't it? This is going to be harder than what you might have in mind. Well, perhaps that's what Ziba was stating here. Perhaps maybe he's making a plea for pity. Why? What are he making a plea for pity? <clears throat> it was the normal course. In that day and time, when a new ruler stepped up to the throne and usurped an old ruler, this is what they would do. They'd find every one of the descendants as possible, everyone who might have claim to the throne, round them up and kill them. One at a time are at mass. The goal, make sure there's no descendants left. Maybe Ziba was making a plea for pity. David, please don't kill him. Don't slaughter him. But you notice what David already told him. Look, I'm not about slaughtering somebody. Even though that's what most kings would do. Even that would be the secure, practical thing to do to ensure the reign of my kingdom throughout our family. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe technically that's what I ought to do. But you know what? He doesn't operate by technicalities. He's operating by a whole other frame, and that is the grace of God. Friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you, we do not operate by technicalities, but we operate by the grace of God. And there is a vast difference between those, as we will see. And so, King says, all right, where is he? Where is he? You know what this also tells me? What this king is doing? He is seeking a recipient. You know what grace does? Grace is the such that not only does it reflect the nature of the giver, not the recipient, Grace seeks a recipient. It is an overflowing, generous heart that's just looking for someone to bless. And that's what David is doing. He says, you know what? I could have just stopped here and talking with Ziba. And he told me that he's in this faraway place. You know what? That's not enough. I need to have him here. Let's bring him here. Lo Debar is what Ziba says. That's where he's at. That word, Debar, means pasture land. The word low is the Hebrew word for no, no pasture land. In other words, this is a barren, dry place. We get the idea that Mephibosheth is placed self-exiled 
as a penalty in his life. And so he's trying to get a faraway place. We have learned and have found that this is probably on the other side, east side of Jordan, perhaps maybe in Syria and Jordan, and Gilead Mountains. That he has gone away from the normal rule and reign of Israel. And he stepped outside of the Jordan River in self-exile. He says, you know what? He's in Lodabar in a barren, faraway place. He who was once far off, let's bring him close. Bring him to my throne. So David sent, had him bring, bring him to this house. You wonder what Mephibosheth was thinking as he was making that journey? Well, boys, this is it. Done for now. Pass me a grape. Let me have some figs. Let me enjoy some wine. This is the end of my days. Maybe he said goodbye to his son. Maybe he said goodbye to his wife as he hobbled onto uh, a horse or whatever it was used to bring them to the place. But he didn't know instead that grace was seeking him, not wrath. Friends, that's what we have in the Word of God. That's what we have as well. Grace is seeking us. Listen, look, notice his name. Mephibosheth. What on earth does that mean anyway? Who on earth would name their child Mephibosheth? I thought Jonathan was a good guy. Well, listen, as we read this text, we realize something. It could very well be that Mephibosheth was the name he gave himself. You see, when you read in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34, and also chapter 9, we find another name that was used to refer to this individual. It was the name uh, Mered Baal. Well, you know, it's not much of a change. Mered Baal. Well, what does that mean? Literally, it means one who contends with Baal. Baal was a false god. In other words, Jonathan, in naming his son, said, I want you to be one who will fight with idolatry in our land. Bring the people to a true God and to worship Him. And that was perhaps the name that was given to him. But we find in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, that there is a disdain for any reference of the name Baal. And so instead we've got this name that he could very well have given himself, Mephibosheth. Now why would he change his name to Mephibosheth? Well let me tell you what Mephibosheth means. It means from the mouth of shame. Or one who scatters shame. Why would Mephibosheth change his name to one who scatters shame? One who is a mouth of shame. Let me tell you, shame was his banner. You see, he was the son of Jonathan, the precious son. He was the one in line to rule. If things worked out as planned, it would have been his after Jonathan. But Jonathan was destroyed, was killed in the battle. Uh, Mephibosheth was just a five-year-old at that time. When word got back to home that his, his father had died, his caretaker, in a panic, ran and fled from there to hide the son. And is and they're fleeing away. Uh, and the carelessness of that fl uh, fl uh, flight, Mephibosheth was dropped. It's a five-year-old little boy, and his feet was damaged to the point where they would never recover. And from that point on, he would be always a cripple. 
He endured a fall that he never would recover from. He had lost his royal position. He had lost his royal titles. And as far as he knew, the next king was out to get him. He was ashamed and put himself out somewhere where no one would get him and changed his name. Because perhaps maybe all that he could remember was what once was. He perhaps maybe was in the prison of his own past, remembering what once was but never more would be. Friends, I'm going to share with you that every single one of us are very much like Mephibosheth. You see, shame also is a part of our life. We find that in the story of the Garden of, 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 of uh, Eden, that there in that place that mankind sinned, they rebelled against God. How is it that we rebelled against God? It's that when we are born in our life, we are born selfish. We're born with a self-oriented way that everything revolves around us. Every toy, every person, every money, every opportunity, every relationship, everything is revolving around us. Why is it you never teach your child to be selfish? Because you never have to. They're born that way. And they will continue in that way. That in the moment of life, when we see the most awe-inspiring moments in life, the one thing that makes it so awe-inspiring is that for once in our life we forgot about ourselves and we saw something greater than, than us. And we are produced, and all is produced in our life. And so when we come to God, we come to the one who created those most awe-inspiring moments. And in the face of that creator God, of the one who is finally worth living for, we say to him, well, that's great, God, but no thank you. I want to live for myself. I want to do as I please. I want to call the shots for how I will live. And we turn our backs on the most beautiful one. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that sin. It is to live short-sighted. It is to live for yourself when there's something more glorious, more grand to live for. And why is it that we're so discontented in that way? Because we're not made to live for ourselves. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we turn everyone to his own way. And that is the condition that every man, every woman, every child is born into. And yes, we are spiritually crippled. We're born broken. That was not the life God intended for us. He did not intend for us to live for ourselves. He did not intend for us not to care when folks are, are hurt and poor and dying and for us to say, you know what, it doesn't impact me, I'm going to go in my merry own way. That was not life as he intended it. But we are like the Phibosheth, and we are ashamed. And in our heart, we know that shame is still there. I'm going to share with you, I know shame is in your life. How do I know that? Because it's in my life. Wherever sin is, shame follows. It is the banner flag. Isn't it interesting that when we see the first word shame introduced, it was done in Genesis chapter 3. After man and woman sinned, they looked upon one another and realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they tried to make garments to cover themselves up. And when God came down, they realized that in the presence of God, who they were, and they were ashamed. And God said, who told you these things? See, it was just a byproduct of sin. It was the banner flag of sin. And for the rest of our lives, we have been trying to cover up the defaults in our life. What if I said, you know what, we're going to change things around. Instead of me talking, we're going to have each one of you talk. That would pretty well do it for you right there. I'm out of here. But it gets even worse. What if I said, you know what, here's what you're going to talk about. 
You're going to come up here, microphone on, this being recorded. You're going to share that one thing in your life that you're so ashamed of. No one knows about. You don't even like admitting to yourself. And we've got a special device up here that as soon as you stand up here, we'll know whether you're telling the truth or not. Because it's going to come right up here on the screen. All those thoughts, every attitude, every mental image, right there. I don't think we could uh, get out of here fast enough. So you know what? That's not for me. Why? Because there's shame in our life. We are one who scatters shame. Why? Because sin is there. There is disobedience. There is living for ourselves that we know is not right, but yet we do. And it's there. We can't do anything about it. And we are in the prison of our past. Well, why do you think we're afraid of death? Perhaps maybe because of the Mephibosheth was afraid of being before the king. He says, you know what, this is it. I'm going to be before the king, and this is the end of it all. Why are we afraid of death? Because in our heart that we, we sense, we think that there may be an accounting of that of which we're ashamed of. And there is someone in our, that we think that may know of these instances, these attitudes, these actions that we have done. And we think that they may be aware of it. And we're scared that it's going to all come out one day. And we're going to do whatever we can. We will develop any mental trick that we can. Any distracting discussion that we can. To get it off of us. And we'll say, what about Trinity? I don't understand Trinity. Why? Why do we say that? So it'll get off of us and stop talking about my sin. And stop talking about my need for forgiveness. And let me bring it to you and tell you why we don't need to talk about this. I don't understand this Trinity thing anymore. And we've got all manners of discourse. We'll say, well, you know, I don't like those people at church anyway. What? You know what? Oftentimes it's more or less an excuse to keep us from thinking about our own sin and where we are before God. Friends, here Mephibosheth was. And he had a date, a date with the king. And he was afraid. Friends, notice what David says. Verse 7. Do not fear. Let me tell you. Here's what God wants to tell you. Yes, there is a date with him. It's appointed unto man once to die, then after this the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. He says, you do not have to fear. You do not have to fear. For I will surely show you kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Let me just share with you that God can say something very similar to you. That he wants to show loving kindness. He wants to show you grace, not because of who you are, but because of the behalf of Jesus. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, I want to give you grace and restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. We know that something's been lost in our life. Something's not right. And we'll spend the rest of our days trying to find what it is that we were destined for. And we'll search through life and still haven't found what we're looking for. But God says, you know what? It's because it's been lost. You once were built for something else. God wants to restore it to you. And that is a relationship with Him. It's what you were made for. He will restore it like David's going to restore to Mephibosheth. The lands that were once given to him. We keep on seeing the extent of grace that David is about to give him. He says, verse 8, again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Dead dog. A dog was an object of disdain. They saw it as an oversized rat, a rodent, a scavenger. Dead dog even worse, it stunk. 
But he says, you know what? I'm just as a dead dog to you. Why are you doing this for me? What is it? I wonder as he was bowing before, if David was straining to look in his face, look in his eyes to see, is there any recognition of his beloved friend, Jonathan? Does he look like Jonathan? Same eyes, same nose. Friends, here's what God wants to see in you. He wants to see not your image. He wants to see the image of Jesus Christ in you. And he's straining, looking, saying, hey, I provided Jesus for you. And I want you to be like him. I provided the spirit of God that can be given to you. And if you will just receive him, if you will bow before me and acknowledge my, your sin before me, I want to give you something. I will restore to you what's been lost, a relationship with you, with him. And in so doing, you started to become more like Jesus. Notice, it goes on as we read the blessings that are given to him. It says, the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and all his house, I've given to your master's grandson. You and your servants and your servants uh, shall cultivate the land for him. You shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, he says, You know what? I'm going to make it so you never have to worry about money again. I'm going to put you in the land, and I'm going to give you all the servants you need to work this land. And you will receive the benefits of their work and their labor. You will be in a great position again. But then he goes on. Even though that happens, nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. All these are now at the disposal of Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servants that your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. He has, brings his son, Micah, and all who live in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. He says, you know what? It's not enough for me to restore the lands to you that were lost. It's not enough for me to restore the servants to you that were lost. I now want to put you in the place of my family. Every day I expect to see you eating with my sons, the princes of Israel. What a wonderful thing. What could Mephibosheth do? You couldn't pay him. You couldn't act noble. Couldn't look pretty enough. Had nothing to do. You see, here's, here's one last important lesson about grace. Grace seeks the recipient. Grace reflects the nature of the giver, not the recipient. Grace is given, not earned. It is within the very inherent definition of grace that it must be given, not earned. There's not one thing that Mephibosheth had that, that David said, Hey, I want you in my presence. I want you eating with me. Except this. He was the descendant of Jonathan. It was that benefit, that one thing. Friends, just like that, God knows every one of your hearts. Kind of said in just with you what we could do if we could put on the screen all of those thoughts that you have, those things you're ashamed of. Friends, God knows them. He needs no screen. He knows he needs no revealing. He is already aware of these things. But here's what the scripture has to say in Romans 5, 8, that God gave his love toward us, that while we were still a sinner, Christ died for us. In other words, what you are most ashamed of, God is already aware of, and he loves you the same, and he wants to give you his son, dying on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? Because your sin, your rebellion, your self-centeredness, there must be a penalty for it. Jesus Christ pays the penalty for it on the cross, being forsaken by God on that cross. And there... Winning the victory for us by being raised from the dead 
because death is the end result of our sin. He conquers death, lets us know sin is vanquished. It's vanquished. It's provided for you. And that the work of God through Jesus Christ, He wants to give you grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus chapter 3, verse 15 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewing of the Holy Spirit in our life. Paul, in writing to his beloved and adopted son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, reminds him of the calling of God in his life. He says, Look, you have been saved. And called with the holy calling. Not according to your works. But according to his purpose. And his grace. Which has been given to us. Before time began. Through Christ Jesus. And now has been revealed. At the appearing of our savior Jesus Christ. Who abolished death. Brought immortality and life to light. Through the gospel. Friends. You can't go to church enough. Isn't that good? You can't go to church enough to earn it. You can't be good enough to earn it. You can't pray enough to earn it. You can't read the Bible enough to earn it. You cannot do enough self-sacrificing things to earn it because then when it's all said and done, as good as we try to be, if we were to sell all our, our goods to the poor, there's still that part within us that says, look how good I am. And it still revolves around yourself. There's no hope. There's no hope for the paralyzed in our spirit. The damage, the hurt done in our spirit were born that way. What can be done? I can't wash away this sin. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ given freely for you. Chuck Swindoll, in writing his book of David about this scene, just does a beautiful job in describing this. Let me read this to you. Picture what life would have been like in the years to come at the supper table with David. The meal is fixed. The dinner bell rings. Along comes the members of the family and their guest. Amnon, clever and witty, comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, one of the guests. Muscular, masculine, attractive. His skin bronzed from the sun, walking tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Next comes Absalom. Talk about handsome. From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, there is not a blemish on him. Then there is Tamar, beautiful, tender daughter of David. And later on, one could add Solomon as well. He's been the study all day, but he finally slips away from his work and makes his way to the table. But then they hear this clump, 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 clump. Here comes Mephibosheth, hobbling along with a big smile on his face, humbly joining the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the table call of grace covers his feet. What a beautiful scene. You get it when Jesus says, Our Father has many rooms in his house. I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has given to you a place at the table. Not as a dead dog, but as a son 
as a daughter of his. I want to wonder, how many of you are in the prison of your past? You're held captive by shame in your heart and your life. Let me tell you, this story is for you. He's given you a picture. He says, this can be used. Let me remind you again. David said, I want to show God's grace.
Uh, you know, when you look at it like that, you think, well, that's kind of a boneheaded way of looking at it. But it's what we do with it. Because we treat love as something to be earned and bought and sold. But what we have instead, that love is not a commodity, is not currency, it is a gift that we are to give. When we are touched by the grace of God, how does it ripple out in our life? It's when we see someone that, yes, gets on our nerves. They need to change. So what do we do instead? It's not going to be changed by, by being mean to them. We look at love differently. They don't learn love. It's a gift. It's grace. We give it to them. It's amazing. You start encouraging them. You start praying for them. It's amazing how things start to change. How they start to change. Maybe some things don't change, but your view of them changes a little bit. I'm going to share, share with you that to change someone is not going to be done by withdrawing love as much as it is to continue to show love and grace to that person. Why? Because that's what God did for you. Just think. You think you were perhaps maybe a jerk? Annoying? Before God? God created you? Loved you? Made you? Knew your destiny? Sustains your very heartbeat? And gives you the next air to breathe? Here we are, saying before God, no thanks. I got more important things. Bunch of religious nuts. But yet God gives us grace and loves us and gives us His Son. And it is that moment that we see that that we are changed, and a big boulder splashes in our life. Let me ask you. Have the far banks of your influences been impacted by God's grace? Do you treat them with the grace that God has given you? Perhaps maybe here's what I dare you to pray. Maybe you should pray like David did here. God, is there anyone that I can show the kindness of God to? I dare you to pray that. Some of you think, yeah, you know, I, I need to do that a little bit in my life. But let me warn you. When you pray that prayer, it does not mean that God's going to give you the most beautiful, sweet spirit in your life. That's not how that works, is it? Is that God's grace? No, that's just normal. When you're nice to them and love them and, and think good thoughts toward them, God will allow somebody in your life that just grates on your nerves. Maybe they used not to, and all of a sudden they start doing it. Or maybe some new individual all together has been placed in their life, in your life. And God says, all right, you want to see God's grace at work? Here's project number one. You have to depend on me. You have to remember. Remember how I treated you, Jerry? Do the same. Do the same. And you know, as we start doing that, become vessels of God's grace, we start becoming a gallery grace of God. When anyone examines your life and looks at relationships, do they see a picture of God's grace? Or instead, do they see pictures of judgment, legalism, mean, spirited? What do they see? God's giving you opportunity to portray something altogether different. But I'm going to tell you, don't try to do this on your own. God, like these commercials, don't, these are professionals who do this. Don't do this on your own. What do I mean? You need God's grace for it to happen in your life. 
Because after all, the grace belongs to God. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're a prisoner of your past. You have shame in your heart and your life, and you know that before God, you are ashamed. You have nothing that you look forward to when it comes to a judgment time before Him. Let me just implore you. That can be changed. That can be changed. I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to pray just a little bit. And in this prayer, I'm going to express a desire for forgiveness, an acknowledgement of your sin, my sin, a belief and trust that Jesus died for you, rose again, that your soul satisfaction can be found in him, and that you proclaim him Lord. If that expresses the desire of your heart, I invite you to pray that with me. I'm going to ask that if you do that, you take that little care card. Go ahead, everybody, take that care card out. And if you express that in your heart before God, I'm going to ask that you fill out on the back of that care card that you made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. The reason I do that is I want to know about it. I want to pray for you. I want to help you. I want you to grow because this is just the beginning of living out grace in your life. And it's a journey that will follow you the rest of your life. And we want to help you. We want to be your support group for you. So I invite you to fill that out on the care card that next as we pray, that expresses your heart. A little bit after we pray, we're going to have a time of invitation. I invite those of you who are members of Green Pines. You realize, you know what? I've not been operating out of grace. I invite you to come to the altar and repent and ask God to change your heart and let grace wash anew in your heart and life and let it flow out to others. I just want to invite you to do it. Perhaps maybe you want to be a part of this church body. It's not a perfect group. I know because I'm a member of it. Uh, it's just not. But I pray it becomes a place of grace. It covers the imperfections of each other. Let's pray. Lord, you know the secrets of my heart. You know my selfish tendency. How all of my life I essentially lived for my own desires and my own way. Lord, I'm not happy where it's taken me. I realize that if I was to die, there would be a judgment that I'd be before you and I would be to them for my selfishness. Lord, I don't want that. I want the life that you talked about, the eternal life that begins even as I breathe now. So Lord, forgive me my sins. I do believe that your son Jesus died for my sins, the penalty of my sins, to save me from your wrath for my sins, and that he did indeed rose again on the third day to prove once for all that his death was sufficient, victorious over death, the result of my sin. Lord, I bow my heart before you. I am your servant. Be my Lord and King. Help me to display grace to those who I walk with and live with. Thank you for saving my soul. Pray this in your precious name.